All right, great. Well, uh, welcome, everyone. Thanks for tuning in uh, for this week's uh, Unscripted Equity Curiosity podcast. Uh, today, I'm very excited to have Ami Joseph, tech sector head at Hedgeye, on the hot seat. Um, past two weeks, it was myself, uh, myself being Andrew Friedman, communication sector head at Hedgeye. And then the week before, we also had uh, Felix Wang, uh, who is the China sector head at Hedgeye. Um, so with that being said, Ami, uh, great to have you in the hot seat today. Thank you. Good to be good to be here. Yeah, uh, this is uh, this is going to just be a kind of a natural extension of kind of what we do all the time. So it, it should be fun. Um, maybe just to kind of like level set everything. Why don't you just give us a little bit of your background? Um, you know, you've been uh, doing this for some time. I'm not going to date you, but um, maybe you can date yourself. But you know, just where you've been, your background, both on the buy and sell side, and kind of how you ended up at Hedgeye. Uh, sure. Um, I started life as a banker, uh, investment banker after college um, at a company that doesn't exist anymore, Bear Stearns, and uh, went from there to the communications equipment world, in which was at the time like the hot startup sector, get rich quick type stuff. Um, obviously, that worked out for me, and I've built many castles since then and drive many fancy cars. Um, and... Uh, when that didn't work out, I went back to Wall Street, uh, but I had always really liked equity research. I just like loved it um, from, like, as an observer or as a, as a consumer of equity research. So I found my way into a job at uh, an equity research shop that also doesn't exist anymore called Thomas Weisel Partners. I was on the semiconductor team doing um, following semiconductor companies in the U.S., and I joined as like the junior person on the team. Um, and got a chance to like learn my way into the industry and just, it was everything I thought it would be. It was amazing. I loved it. I loved Tom Swazer Partners, loved my time there. And ultimately at some point along the journey, I started having children and Fidelity came along and offered me a job and I went to Fidelity and continued everything there. Uh, spent time, that was my buy side period of time was Fidelity. Then Putnam came along and offered me a the bigger, better job. I went there and uh, ultimately left Putnam and created my own um, uh, shop, which was like serving uh, serving um, specific funds with as like a senior analyst in tech with longs and shorts. Um, so kind of doing what I'm doing now, but but more like bespoke work for specific funds. And I met Keith along the way and he said, hey, come join us. And here we are five years later. And that's kind of gives you the full circle. <laughs> Great. Um, and it's and it's been tech the whole time, right? I and mean, I know you said communications equipment to begin with, but pretty much, you know, TMT has been your space your entire yeah, career. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, cool. So you've, you've seen all the different kind of cycles and all, all the different learnings. I, I guess just maybe in terms of your process, I mean, you, you're bouncing around from, you know, the buy side to the sell side, having your own shop for a little bit. You know, how how is your kind of process when it comes to, picking stocks and understanding the industry, how, how has that changed over time? You know, in the semiconductor side of things, you're always thinking about timing. And you're thinking about, because at least back then in 2003, 4, 5, 6, you're, you're really just constantly worried that you're going to get smashed over the head by another cycle, by another <laughs> tidal wave, or by an excess <laughs> supply conditions, which, you know, come and yeah. go, or an inventory cycle. So you're always looking for kind of like, 
how to think about the equities relative to the build cycle, the supply cycle, the inventory cycle. Um, that leads to a very specific type of way of thinking, which I would say can be harmful for long-term investing, or maybe that's just because of where we are in 2021 on the look-back basis, and four years from now we'll be like, oh my God, <laughs> thank God I had that in my toolkit because I was able to pull it out of nowhere. Um, but then, like really, like at Fidelity when I was there, like really learned how to how to invest, or at least I I had the opportunity to learn, um, and that's because Fidelity has it's like 150 you know professional investors, and that's combined like analysts and portfolio managers, and there's like rapid internal debate that's constantly happening on not an actual debate of like people standing in the hallway screaming at each other, but you can see everyone's portfolios. You can see what all the analysts are writing and researching and embedded in all those decisions are conclusions and thesis and way of doing it and things that they like and, you know, value approach or growth approach or a GARP approach or whatever it is. And so you get to kind of, that was really good, almost like going to university for me and really being able to study a lot of different ways of thinking and kind of over time figured out some of the puzzle pieces that, made sense to me the ways that I like to do things. And then I got this, and I was in like a backseat job um, in at Fidelity, and then Putnam came along, and that was a front seat job, which means I got the chance not just to learn, but also to apply what I had learned, which that was a lot of fun too. And, and I would say since then, all I've been doing is applying, applying, applying. And what we do here now, I still feel like a bysider. It's just that we are also creating content, but the, but the fundamental mechanism I think is the same, which is, you know, you're trying to find the long-term winners and you're trying to short the long-term losers. Like if you could be, you know, the last five years, for example, if you could be long Apple and short IBM, um, you would, right? And that's an obvious conclusion. One's a good company and succeeding and has a market and is executing and one company has lost everything and is, <laughs> is papering it over with, you know, tax efficiencies or buybacks or acquisitions and debt. Um, and so if you can win in the space in between, in my, in my, the way I think about things, you know, probably like a, an Uber market bull would just look at me and be like, that's stupid. Just own Apple. Forget about even shorting IBM because there are times where IBM rallies and it'll, it'll constrain or, or throttle your, your, your alpha creation. And I think, no, like days like this, the last two weeks or, or, or a month like, like February to March of, of 2020 are a perfect example of why you do that. Because in those months, yes, Apple's going to go down a lot, but IBM's going down a lot too. So technically... Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, and that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a really good point just in terms of the investment process, right? I mean, look, there are a few people out there that don't short, don't know how to short, don't want to short. They just want to be long only. And that's fine too, right? Um, but to your point, like even at like a big shop like Fidelity or a mutual fund, like where you're, you know, constantly being compared to an index, right? It's, it's trying to figure out what outperforms and underperforms, right? So just having that same type of framework that you just laid out is still incredibly important, you know, um, especially as you mentioned in kind of periods of volatility like we've been in. Um, I, I guess, like, you, you know, you mentioned like finding like the good companies and, you know, being one of those and shorting like the bad companies. And yeah, I mean, it kind of sounds simple, but in reality, it's much harder to identify that and apply it. You know, maybe just taking one, you know, a step back a little bit like is it is, are there is there any like themes that you can look at uh in this in the software space specifically or in the semi space or anywhere that can kind of like act as a launching pad to doing further due diligence on individual stocks 
Um, I mean, I remember, you know, just coming out of college, it's like, it was just like the early days of the cloud, right? And you've seen this huge, you know, shift and people have made a lot of money betting on that trend. And, you know, I'm just curious, you know, how you view the world today um, and if that, you know, way of thinking is still valid. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's all about, to me, it's about figuring out like the adoption curve path which would give me like almost like a cheat code on the top line, on what the top line is going to do. So like I'll give you just like a couple of examples, um, like Taiwan Semiconductor, for example. Like every year, year in, year out, they outperform the semiconductor industry. Either you're measuring it on volume growth or revenue growth. And I think now probably, you know, this consensus long now, I guess, maybe people understand. But forever, like this was not – understood people looked at this more like a cyclical stock and but i was the way i understood uh taiwan semiconductor and by the way as investors like you know there's always like the handful of stocks that you know you get the cheat code on and you don't get them all a cheat code on every stock but so you you really have to really have to embrace the ones that you where you do figure out um so for example with taiwan semiconductor what i figured out was that it wasn't a cyclical semiconductor company. It was more like a software, like well, not in what they do, not in what they print and create. They print semiconductors, not software uh, code. But they, um, but they are. Uh, it's a penetration curve. It is a disruptive approach to manufacturing electronics, and their approach was brand new 35 years ago, and even fast forward to today is still underpenetrated relative to the size of the industry, which is like a $500 billion revenue industry. And if you look at Taiwan Semiconductor's customer set, roughly speaking, they they are in the 80 to $100 billion of revenue zone. So you can see that if this really sustains the advantage and they continue to execute on the benefit against the industry, you can plot a chart on the penetration curve and it doesn't not always perfect there are steps you know faster and there are steps slower but you pretty much will get along the way you'll be able to pinpoint so for so for example coming back to AWS to to cloud you take AWS which is like a 41 billion dollar run rate revenue company on its own growing 29% year over year and you add in Google and Microsoft's cloud stuff so you're in the 60 billion 65 billion dollar zone range right for the whole all three of them growing very fast probably growing north of 30% year over year um and you're like well when is this over you look you chart it against the total um like IT spend because they're swallowing the entire infrastructure side of of the IT spend plus all the middleware side. So there's really much more there's there and on top of which um they're unlocking the consumption of computing, right? So your computing utilization of the workload of each little Intel CPU or AMD CPU sitting there in the server may have been used, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50% of the time at an enterprise on-premise data center. Now it's running flat out. They only yeah. add capacity when they're at 90%, right? I mean, they have failover, but like that's um, – so I think that um, – so that they act, in the end, they'll be bigger. They will have unlocked a market that's even bigger than what the total IT market looks like today or on a backward look. So that's kind of like how to think about it. Interesting. Yeah, you run a penetration curve, and you're going to get the next 12 months wrong on that, right? Like that's not going to give you like a cheat code to this year's revenue. But on a forward basis, a two- to five- to seven-year basis, you're going to be right, and 
that's going to give you like a, a cheat way of modeling the company and understanding like why you're going to win. As long as you're sure that that this isn't like a really bad business model and yeah, that might win on penetration curve, but it's going to be horrible margins and worse and worse for cash flow and all this. You know, you don't want to. That's you don't want to. You want to avoid that, right? You want to make sure that there's like a happy curve along the way. That even if they don't have free cash flow right now, that over time it it has a good business model for waterfalling free cash flow. Got it. And 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 I guess you know, like how do you go about like measuring and mapping and tracking kind of where we are in that adoption? And I think you said thirty to forty percent before, but I, I may have misinterpreted that but but you know when you're talking about you know amazon you know and aws and kind of everyone's like the whole ecosystem getting swallowed up by the cloud you know how how like how do you think about idea generation like what are the signals along that adoption curve that you look for right because at some point you know like with all adoption curves like once you you know you get get over 50 percent and then you know growth slows and then the question always becomes like what's next or or what's changing so um, I'm just curious how, you know, you think about that as it relates to kind of the software space generally and then, you know, any of these specific names. Yeah, so for adoption curves, there's been, like, really great um, math done on these and great papers written. And um, I'm going to try to paraphrase what I've learned. And probably if I went back to those original papers, I might find errors in what I think I know versus what I read once upon a time. But I guess what I would say is that what it seems like is, that in the um, the the, the um, penetration of large markets from zero to one percent is, is extremely difficult and almost not worth being an investor. It's like VC it should be VC investing, um, and because because many times you'll never get to the one. You just won't even if you get past zero. Um, one to three is typically like sweet spot for where you've got like a mid cap company. And you're like, oh, my God, I can see this. Because when they hit three, mathematically, from three to 30, there's a really good acceleration period. Um, and then you start to slow from, you know, from 30 beyond you slow. And then there's another range of slowing that happens, as you mentioned, north of it's actually come more towards 60, but it's between 50, 60. So mathematically, I'm saying that there's different points along the curve. Now, that doesn't mean you, say, short the stock when it gets to, like, one-third penetration, right, because it's still going to grow. It just – the multiple range may change. The nature of the company may change. And oftentimes, management teams don't understand where they are relative to their own curve. And so they hit 31%, and they're like, let's go. And they're, like, adding spending. They're adding headcount. They're, like, tripling their CapEx, right? And that's yeah, – Right into a slowdown. <laughs> that's right. That's like a short-term yeah. short. And then everyone's like, oh, what happened? Why did we slow down? And they get on the call, and you know who they blame? They blame the head of sales, like always, right? For sure. They fire the head of sales, chief revenue officer. Well, we're fixing our go-to-market, and it's going to take a couple of quarters, but it'll all work out, right? Like – and but it's never about penetration curve and things like that, and that's why as an investor, the work that can be done that's unique for all of us is like and more, and I would admit fully that in 2021 a lot more of this is being done than you know kind of like when I developed this process in from 2006 to 2015. But I think that so it's been this is this is kind of like more done today. But I would say like as investors, um, the place where you don't want to be differentiating. So much is on like, um, you know, we're 10 cents better in EPS this coming quarter or 10 cents below um, the three month look, right? It's, it's much harder and it's based on the current P&L setup. The best place to compete from an equity research perspective, and, and by the way, at, at times you do have those calls. 
and you take them, you go with them. But um, but the bulk of what you do should be competing almost like the filling in the middle ground between what investors do and what like Gartner and IDC do and people like that um, who are talking about market sizes and customer preferences and heat maps and things like that of customer adoption and whatever. If you can fill in the investor work that sits in between, you know, what they printed on revenue this year and what they're guiding for revenue next year versus like what Gartner and, and, and IDC and those people are talking about on the, you know, five to 15 year zone. If you can fill in that space in between, that's really where you get some really good research and you yeah. can get advantages and, and more importantly, figure out like what are the ones that are going to be the ones that you say like, holy cow, this is going to be a sustaining growth rate. And even though everybody's really worried about the growth here and slowdown over the next six months, like I don't care, like because I know three years from now, this is going to be a home run. Yeah. And, and, and everything that you just described, I mean, like the, if there's like one stock that just kind of pops into my head when I think about this and you guys had an epic call on it last year was was Zoom. Right, because you have like when you, when we think about adoption curves, you know, and and also just the massive amount of demand, right, that they experienced, and how you guys, you know, manage that. So maybe you know maybe just as another case study, just because it's you know it's just in the last year, like you know how does how how does your call on Zoom kind of fit within that process? So with Zoom, I think that like everyone. Um, who might come at a stock that is like expensive and um, has just recently doubled um, on top of was expensive before it doubled and <laughs> is kind of like you're worried that like, oh, my God, everybody must know. Right. Like this was kind of like what we came at at Zoom in, in April of 2020. Um, the stock had already doubled during the pandemic. And it's like if I if you went around as a professional investor saying, oh, we're going to get along Zoom, I think you'd get a lot of eye rolls being like, come on, man, really? Like, stop. But so what we where we innovated with that one was it ended up being really short-term um, um, advantage because we went out and we created a rich data set that didn't exist. We created a an invoice tracker. We used the sequential numbers on Zoom invoices to create our own view of uh, the rate of change of invoices for, for Zoom. And we were able to back test it, um, you know, not perfectly with the data because it wasn't like super rich on a backward look basis, but it was enough to give us uh, a good enough signal that we had something real. And what we saw from that was something like, you know, tenfold or whatever it was increased sequentially in invoice in transactions uh, for Zoom sequentially. So yeah, the stock had doubled, but like, the business had grown 10x in the sequential period of time. And so we modeled that out, um, obviously, with the deterioration of dollars per transaction. So I'm talking about the volume side had grown 10x, but, you know, you had transitioned from being being like very large, you know, cost enterprise demand to kind of like everyone, enterprise and midsize and small and everyone. So the mix changed of the business. So you had to you had to kind of create estimates on like the dollar per transact per volume per transaction side. But once you did that, um, we were we modeled that out and we got to, by the way, exactly where we fast forward a year, exactly where we are right now with like revenue and free cash flow and everything for this coming year, right? With over like four point two or four point three billion dollars of revenue mm -hmm. in this fiscal year with like free cash flow north of two billion dollars. And when we went with that, we said those things People looked at us, and literally someone thought that I was the cannabis analyst. 
and said to me, like, literally people said to us, you guys are stoned. If you think this company will do over $2 billion of free cash flow next year, you are the craziest people I've ever met. We heard this from an a really smart institutional investor. So, um, and so part of like actually what we realized was we'd probably sell this stock when the market would come back to us and tell us that Zoom was really cheap because at the time, the way we saw it, even though the company stock had doubled in the pandemic, so it was like 160 bucks, we were like, this is really cheap because they're, they're going to do $2 billion of free cash flow next year, which was like a really cheap multiple and growth and all those kinds of things and whatever. Um, and so that was the story around Zoom was the creation of a really unique and yeah. rich data set, which helped us and also helped us get off at the right time because what we saw was that the that basically the things had atrophied or stabilized, but now they were the core business had had slowed to a point where it was growing at a twenty percent year over year rate, which is which is amazing for a company doing a billion dollars a quarter or so of business, right? Like that's kind of like where mm-hmm. Zoom is right now. Um, but it means that you're going to have increasingly difficult comps for a period of time, and that kind of thing is like it's you know. Well, you got to you got to digest. You got to, yeah. The stock price has to digest a lot of the growth that they experienced in the case of Zoom, right? It was like. When you were talking about adoption curves before, I mean, look, it's, you clearly pulled forward a lot of adoption, right? So there's adoption curves within adoption curves often, and um, so I think you know you guys you guys nailed it and you know communicated the path you know really really well. Um, and who knows? I mean, I, I think uh, you know maybe we'll we'll be on the other side of that and we'll start to go back up on the product adoption curve maybe later this year. Is that is that kind of how you guys are thinking about it? Yeah, because they have this second product called Zoom Phone, which is like a no-brainer, and it's going to win, and it's going to be very big. But it, it, <laughs> okay. it's already like accelerating, but it's accelerating from zero in the zero to one zone, as I mentioned before. And you got to get long when yeah, it's in the one to three zone. So we're in that we're in that zero to one. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Ami, yeah. Oh, Felix. Go ahead, Felix. Uh, I just had a uh, question: If that phone is available in China, I'm just curious. <laughs> I don't know. Good question. Um, it's kind of more of like an enterprise product because it just anyway, yeah. It's just, but it's a good question, Felix. I don't know. Um, Felix, I'll, I'll pass the ball to you. I just have one last question for Ami. Yeah. Um, actually, Sorry, actually, I have like five other. No, it's okay. I have actually like probably like twelve other questions for Ami, but I'm just gonna say I have one. Um, so. When we think about kind of adoption and, you know, finding kind of that sweet spot, right? Like, you know, that 3% to 30%, that seems like if you can identify those, that's where you get like your five to 10 bagger potential. Um, when you look at kind of the broader tech space, like, like what themes are there to play? You know, like maybe like 10 years ago, it was the cloud. You know, now, like now what, what's next? Like what, what is it? Is it, a, is, a, is it AI? Is it, um, you know, infrastructure as a service. I don't know. I'm not a tech analyst. I'm a comms analyst. It's a little bit different. So I could just be you know, pulling things out of my butt here. But, you know, just you know, tell me what you think. So generally speaking, I would say that uh, pace of innovation continues to accelerate rather than decelerate. It's obviously very bullish for the sector. I mean, you know, stock market may decide that someone else is the new favorite and that's okay. I'm just talking about in terms of like um, creation of feature and functionality um, and adoption of those things. That all looks amazing right now. Um, And just to give you like snippet, it's, you know, cloud 
starts up in really with AWS in 2006, AWS issues Lambda in 2016, and both of those things are like signature inflections of speed. Um, and even fast forward to today, if you look at, um, you mentioned machine learning, you mentioned AI, but like really machine learning is kind of like the, uh, it, it's still very, very early for machine learning, um, but that's a very powerful trend. And also um, APIs is a very powerful trend that we called out in our theme deck in August 2020, where basically like more and more software is being consumed as like building blocks rather than like bought as a product. So for example, you know, with, with Slack, it's a product. You're going to, you buy access to Slack. You're paying your whatever, $8 a month per seat or something. And it opens up on your computer and you're on your phone and it's like a fully formed product and they're in charge of all that stuff. Twilio, on the other hand, you're going to use a Twilio building block for integrating text messaging, two-way text messaging into your website, into your mobile application or calling out of your mobile application, things like that. Um, and you're just basically grabbing a building block that they're giving you so that you don't have to recreate the wheel. Um, but there's but these building blocks are increasingly sophisticated, getting increasingly fast adoption into large marketplaces or large um, ecosystems of software usage and blowing up really fast in revenue as well and becoming um, a more important way for systems to talk to each other um, and also for companies to measure and map their interaction with their partners and with their customers. So APIs are a really important uh, thing. It's not necessarily a new technology, really already back in 2002, Jeff Bezos issued like a, a, like a letter to the whole firm saying like, this is how we're doing things. It's called, you know, service calls, which is an API. But this is how we're integrating all our functionality. If you don't, if you're not on board with this, you know, something like you're going to be fired, basically. <laughs> Like a crazy memo back then. So AWS <laughs> yeah. is technically the largest standalone API first business in the world. Twilio is the largest like one you can buy as a stock. Um, but I think that's a very powerful trend. And these areas continue to accelerate and to create acceleration. Because, again, like the, build, the presence of building blocks means that the time it takes for you as a company to create value that you want, you see is missing in the world is shorter and shorter because all the other, like, you don't have to rebuild the wheel on all the other things you need to do, right? You don't need to hire a team to develop telephony in the back of your app because it's just there for you. You just grab the API. Or if you want to embed search into your website, you'll call Algolia, which and use their app, you'll embed their API into your website so you don't have to worry about figuring out the puzzle of search, because that's really not what your website's about. Your core value add in the world is not that you have a great search algorithm. You just want to see what's out there, right? Grab it off the shelf and go and have your website do the special thing that it's supposed to do. Okay. Felix, do you have any uh, questions for Ami? Uh, I have a ton, but I'm just trying to keep it short since we're running a little bit out of time. Ami, thanks for the introduction and in, in your background. It's been very insightful to hear about how you uh, how you come on board here? I, I I just have a very general question. Uh, I know we talked about you know what you think are the next trends in tech. I how have the large tech firms reacted to um, the trade war? Um, 
specifically the issue of you know transfer of technology between the U.S. and China. I, I that's always been on my mind. I, I'll be you know I'm curious to see what you have gleaned from listening to a lot of the tech firms in 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 the U.S. See how they have said about this this issue. Sure. So to give you like specifics. Um, when the Huawei ban was announced in May, um, it was like an immediate short-term sharp uh, decline for about three weeks of orders uh, having to be cleaned off of books for many many uh, companies who are suppliers to um, the Chinese OEMs in this category. Um, however, the reaction afterwards was that all of the competitors of Huawei have um, built up uh, their inventories in order to um, in order to uh, fill in the missing market share points that are uh, being penalized, for example, on Huawei. So that's like an example of, and we're still carrying the, the the supply chain is still carrying that inventory today because those things don't. It's not like overnight that those things can be designed, replaced in, and so on and so forth. These are more like medium-term cycle uh, businesses. So that's like one example. Um, on the software side, I would say that it's maybe the opposite where where for for a long time the main software company that made its way in China was Microsoft and made their way meaning like suffered um, like just just absolute piracy um, right you know if there was piracy on the margin. Um, in other countries, in China, it was like the central way that the software was used and adopted. Um, until, of course, they changed things. So one of the reasons Microsoft went to 365, the cloud, was in order to be able to control access to their software from a central location and rather than it being distributed, in which case they, they don't control access. Um, so that's one of the ways that software has tried to migrate. But the software companies really typically don't serve China so much. Um, in part for this reason that there's um, a double-edged, it's, it's, it's been traditionally difficult and some companies have learned how to um, supply China. For example, SAP was always very forward-thinking in terms of how they partnered um, with local um, companies in the software supply chain uh, for IT service integration and development in China. And so they were always very good at getting adopted in China, whereas Oracle was not uh, because they uh, had trouble with the piracy problem. They had trouble because China would ask them to set up local R&D shops, and then the people that they would hire in those R&D shops would eventually leave and create you know, copycat software and things like that. So it's been harder for the software industry, and I would say to this point, um, the U.S. software industry is underpenetrated in China. It's probably a long-term like opportunity for China to build and create its own software industry. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, China definitely knows how, how to copycat. Um, I I just uh, had a follow-up question on. I know Andrew asked this a little bit earlier, but in terms of what you're seeing, the tech world, uh, the new trends, what's hot. I, I've always been thinking that, you know, tech IPOs are always extremely hot and well-followed. Where, maybe in the next, you know, six months, in the next year, where do you would like to, you know, delve and do more work in um, on some of the upcoming IPOs? Like, where are you most interested in? Because I feel like there's always a new IPO from tech world uh, every couple of days. 
Well, one of the most exciting companies that Yosef and I have come across um, in the recent years of work is um, uh, Zapier. Um, and that's a company, a private company. Um, they are uh, like an API super duper. Basically, uh, instead of you having to do the work to integrate your product or software with, um, you know, the 2,000 other products you want to be um, integrated with, you just work with Zapier and they make sure that your product is integrated with all the places that you want to do. So it's like a one-stop move in that sense for integrations. Um, and so, like, there's something very awesome and special about the company. They have only raised $1.5 million of capital, right, for outside capital in their entire uh, period. And they've scaled to be, they're, they're probably north of $300 million of ARR right now. Um, Sequoia w wanted so bad to invest in this company, and they weren't allowed in. And talking about Sequoia, the number one best, you know, VC in the world, tried so hard to get in that what Sequoia did was they found their way by buying shares of Zapier on a secondary exchange where employees were selling shares to each other. So that's how special Zapier is, and I'm sure when it comes, it'll be like high-flying and super-duper valuation, but that's one that like we'd be so excited for. But even in the, and that's, I don't know if that's 2021 or 2022, but in the near term, there's so many good ones that are coming. Databricks is coming. Um, Hashi is coming. Um, there's just a whole slew of them. And because Felix, even better is like in the last five years, there's been so much equity creation in software that Yosef and I have not had a chance to go and, you know, go and topple all the, all the blocks or, or climb all the hills. And we have so much curiosity out there, whether it's Datadog or Dynatrace or Snowflake or, um, even McAfee, an older company that ha is trying to be reborn and to fix its product, or CrowdStrike, a newer company. So there's so many companies out there that we are excited to go do. So even if the um, window closes for some reason and we don't get any of these new IPOs, I think for we're just so excited about a rich landscape of opportunity um, and those will touch on things like even security software. It'll be uh, uh, big C, and we've done a lot of work already on Shopify, which is exciting. Andrew and I have talked about that one before, so I'm sure that'll come up again, and we'll talk about it here. But I think those are some of the areas that I think we're pretty excited about over the next 12 months. That's amazing. I think you have a soft heart for all companies that start with the letter Z. Um, <laughs> you've, you've done amazing work on Zendesk, Zoom, uh, Zoom Info. So add another Z to it. Um, All right, we'll you. look for that. We can't wait to hear more about these uh, new IPOs. I'm sure that they're going to be super hot. Thank you. All right. Well, um, I think that's about. Uh, all the time we have today, we'll we'll wrap it up here. Ami, this has been excellent. Thank you so much for going over your process and talking about adoption curves and how you think about the world. Uh, hopefully, folks on listening to this also found some value out of it too. Uh, so thanks everyone again for listening, and uh, you know hopefully catch you back here uh, for next episode. Take care.
The preceding has been presented for informational purposes only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal tax accounting or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at Hedgeye.com terms of service.